Thank you everyone for joining us for today's COVID-19 webinar series sponsored by CHEST. Today's presentation, Critical Care, Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine Coding and Billing during the pandemic and beyond should really um, help clarify some of the unprecedented changes that we've experienced during the COVID pandemic, uh, not only with clinical medicine, but with coding billing and opportunities to expand your um, reach into your community with telemedicine and alike. I'm joined today by uh, three terrific panelists, uh, Dr. Katie Sarmiento from the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Mike Nelson from Shawnee, Kansas, um, Shawnee Mission, Kansas, and Dr. Scott Maniker from uh, Penn Medicine. Uh, three timely topics, three amazing speakers, longtime colleagues, and chess members. Uh, I want to spend a moment uh, just introducing some of today's topics, the role of telemedicine, remote monitoring, and why they're likely here to stay. We've seen a number of changes uh, and rechanges and updates this year, and that's likely to continue into 2021. Um, there's huge opportunity to really leverage uh, remote monitoring and telemedicine, uh, particularly in some of our um, more geographically uh, dispersed communities. Appropriate coding and billing during the pandemic, pearls and pitfalls. Um, some really great things came out of the pandemic, uh, which uh, will be covered today. And then looking beyond COVID-19, what's next in 2021? There had been a lot of government movement toward changes with E&M and critical care and uh, a lot of the things that we do on a daily basis. And um, we're hopefully going to put some um, uh, information into your hands that will begin to prepare you and your practices for the changes that may uh, soon ensue. That being said, I'd like to start today's presentation. Dr. Sarmiento. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm honored to be a part of this webinar alongside both Drs. Maniker and Nelson. Um, I do consult and have funding to disclose, um, but neither of these are related to the webinar. Uh, next slide. So telehealth has become increasingly utilized over the past several years as we have become more digitally connected, broadband has improved, and consumers have demanded this option. The pandemic, however, precipitated a market shift to telehealth and providers who had never engaged in telemedicine previously found themselves navigating new ways of seeing patients. There's also been an alteration of some of the rules related to remote monitoring and checking in on patients. So we now have providers who are running their outpatient clinics from home offices and who are performing inpatient consultations and co-management from home. Patients can be seen in their homes or places of employment without needing to take extended time off to travel to an office. And depending on the healthcare system repair, patients and providers may be located in different states or regions. So we're seeing new devices emerge and greater use of existing devices that support asynchronous telehealth. And we're seeing a lot of innovation in meeting patients' needs through telehealth. We can aim to bring care to patients when they need it and where they prefer to get it. We can also reduce travel burden and lost work or family hours uh, through telehealth. And we can improve access to specialists that may not be located in a specific geographic area. Uh, we can also start to reduce redundancy in diagnostic imaging or testing by accessing raw data remotely and um, use this uh, information or obtain this information through the healthcare information exchanges. So next slide. There are so many um, opportunities and use cases for the fields of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. So I'll be going through use cases for each of these. Uh, many of these programs already exist, but are seeing rapid expansion and innovation. So telepulmonary rehab is the first. Uh, this is an effective way of making pulmonary rehabilitation more accessible to patients. It's based on synchronous or asynchronous instruction on exercises and education, paired with synchronous supervision and monitoring of oxygenation or heart rate and symptoms such as breathlessness. Telespirometry leverages store and forward collection and review of pulmonary function data from either a patient's home or from an 
outlying clinic, community clinic, and can improve access to data that we find so valuable in establishing a diagnosis uh, or monitoring for progression of a patient's disease or response to therapy. Many portable spirometry devices exist, both with and without built-in coaching, but coaching can also be um, done through synchronous video chat visits uh, with the patient to ensure uh, quality. In addition to spirometry, home-based peak flow monitoring might be useful in certain disease processes. Lung cancer screening is also a rapidly expanding program and can be established as a hub-spoke network of image capture and review by radiologists elsewhere combined with electronic chart review for e-consultations or synchronous visits with patients to counsel them, review results, and determine plans of care. Next slide, please. And for patients with advanced respiratory failure on home mechanical ventilation, we can monitor these vents remotely, see patients through video chat or by phone. And although we can't change these settings remotely, a telehealth visit supported by a respiratory therapist that may be in home with the patient um, can be effective at making adjustments to and troubleshooting the ventilator in real time. Remote education applies to both pulmonary and sleep medicine, um, but I've listed it only here. So um, patient education on proper use of inhalers and evaluation of technique of inhaler use is a good use case. Um, and this can be demonstrated and observed uh, and feedback provided during synchronous visits. And then lastly, I think we'll see a lot more teleconsultation and telemedicine hub-spoke models for highly specialized expertise uh, across sites where many centers may have a gap in this expertise. So examples could include ILD, cystic fibrosis, pulmonary hypertension, lung transplantation, or um, management, respiratory management of neuromuscular disease. Next slide, please. So moving on to telesleep, uh, home sleep apnea testing is considered store and forward telehealth and can facilitate greater access to diagnostic testing where labs don't exist. Synchronous or asynchronous education can be provided about sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing, and then also instruction can be provided on device use. Uh, this data can be uploaded and later reviewed for interpretation uh, by a provider. Remote monitoring, again, of both PAP devices and home mechanical ventilation is already in widespread use, but this leverages modem transmission of device data to a manufacturer's cloud. And this data on adherence and efficacy of therapy can be reviewed and then used to determine whether patients should be seen uh, or stay the course uh, with their management and triaged into telehealth or face-to-face -face pathways. So teleconsultation and telemedicine is also in widespread use for sleep. It's a perfect specialty for telehealth. Um, and we can evaluate both breathing and non-breathing disorders uh, through telemedicine. And it also includes within sleep specialty consultations uh, to services that may be more scarcely available, such as to sleep-focused oral maxillofacial surgeons, sleep psychologists, or pediatric sleep specialists. All right, and next slide. One of the pathways we've seen emerge in large volume uh, within VA, since VA is also its own uh, durable medical equipment company, is remote PAP setup and DME clinics where patients are provided with pre-programmed devices that can be shipped to them, um, and then they can be set up, oriented, instructed on device use through a video chat or phone visit, uh, and then followed up uh, remotely through telephone or video chat visits to follow. So we can effectively um, fit them with masks, troubleshoot, change pressure settings, and really work with patients to help uh, improve their adherence um, uh, and compliance with therapy. Next slide. So tele-ICU has been around for many years, but uh, this has experienced rapid uh, expansion of services during the pandemic. It does improve access to intensive care expertise in remote areas or in those facilities without 24-7 coverage. Uh, during COVID, we did see a, a lot greater flexibility uh, from non-surge sites, augmenting intensivist expertise at surge sites. Uh, and one thing I'd like to highlight is that tele-ICU personnel are not just limited to physicians, but also include advanced practice providers, critical care nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, and palliative care teams. Uh, and these services may include just single consultations or co-management of patients for continuity on a day-to-day -day basis. Next slide. There are clearly challenges with telehealth. And until the pandemic, most barriers were related to reimbursement and actual bandwidth. 
But with the pandemic, where telehealth has become really the only way to access some of these services, we face new challenges such as helping patients new to telehealth or without technology be able to engage in their care. There's been a lot of confusion with understanding and implementing the new remote monitoring codes and how rules change during the pandemic, um, when and how to obtain patient consent to participate, how to manage e-emergencies and notification of emergency response personnel in that patient's community, um, navigating or establishing healthcare information exchanges and device interoperability, understanding liability and laws specific to telehealth, such as prescribing of opioids, and how to educate our trainees, developing effective curriculum and getting faculty appointments regionally where needed, where trainees are based. Um, we also have had challenges defining what quality metrics um, we should have and then ensuring that we're actually meeting these and addressing known disparities that have prevented patient engagement um, and access to telehealth services. Next slide. So my list of opportunities looks really similar to the list of challenges. Uh, for good reason. Uh, we're in a very exciting time of being able to leverage technology and information exchanges. And there's a tremendous interest uh, from industry in supporting health-related AI, increasing broadband access and making it affordable, and expanding interoperability. So we're seeing innovating education, uh, innovative education models emerge uh, simultaneously. We're defining new quality measures and metrics and identifying opportunities for improvement. We have new telehealth pathways that have emerged that would benefit from validation and scaling once validated. And we're also uniquely positioned during this time to the value of possibly unnecessary visits or components of visits to gather the data needed to determine this and then to de-implement these if truly unnecessary and not a value add. And lastly, but of great importance, is the opportunity to advance efforts at reducing disparities in health through the use of telehealth. And next slide. Since these codes are telehealth focused and not covered by my colleagues, I wanted to just show you the 2020 remote monitoring codes. So just as we started to implement these, uh, the pandemic hit and the rules for using them uh, changed. So there's four codes we use for remote monitoring. The first covers the setup of the device and patient education on using it, as well as monitoring for at least uh, 16 days. That's the 99453. Um, the second code is 99454, and this covers device setup and transmission every 30 days. It can be done by a non-physician or non-qualified healthcare provider and does not require patient interaction. The third is 99457, which does cover remote physiologic monitoring and management uh, of patients for at least 20 minutes and can be billed once every calendar month. It requires a physician or other qualified healthcare professional or clinical staff member to interact with the patient by text, email, or phone. And then uh, there is a code 99458 uh, that can add additional 20 minutes of time to the 99457 if appropriate. And then the last code is 99091. Uh, this is not a new code, but it covers the collection interpretation of physiologic data that requires at least 30 minutes of time. And this code does not require interaction with the patient and can be used every 30 days. So um, it should be noted in fine print at the bottom of the slide that uh, the April interim final rule from CMS allows the use of these codes for periods of time less than 16 days, um, but not less than two days during this public health emergency. And so for monitoring of patients between two and 16 days, payment is limited to those with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 diagnoses. Remote monitoring codes can also be used for patients with acute uh, conditions as opposed to previously just for chronic and can be used in both new and established patients uh, during this public health emergency. Next slide. So I wanted to show you two brief use cases for these codes. The first is remote monitoring specific to the pandemic. So the scenario is your patient has advanced COPD and is suspected of having COVID. She's quarantined at home you set her up with a pulse oximeter and follow her remotely every two days to evaluate for progression of symptoms and to obtain saturation and pulse. How do you bill for this? So the first code that could be used is 99453, which covers provision of the device, education, and interaction with the patient. Subsequently, you can use 99457, which requires interaction with her, or 99091, which doesn't. The second scenario, next slide is a common pre-pandemic scenario. 
uh, in sleep. So sleep clinic is tomorrow. Your respiratory therapist is downloading modem data on patients recently set up on PAP therapy and is entering a note summarizing this data and relevant information in a note in the electronic health record. The respiratory therapist does not contact the patient and does not make any changes to therapy. Which code do you use? So in this case, you would use 99454, which covers review of the data transmitted by the device. There's no communication with the patient required and uh, no treatment plan required. This would be quite different if the data download required action, which was reviewed by a physician or other qualified healthcare provider and patient contact was made to institute changes. In this case, you would use 99457. And uh, this slide completes my section of the talk. So I hope I've laid the groundwork for thinking about how to expand telehealth in your practices, both during the public health emergency and beyond. On to Dr. Nelson. Okay, thanks, Katie. I am uh, Mike Nelson. I want to thank everybody for being here and thank Chess for inviting me to do this, I think. Uh, next slide, please. This is my disclosures. You can read through them. I won't read through them for you. Next slide, please. So I'm going to briefly review the telehealth services, uh, and then I'm going to go into some changes in terms of what we anticipate is going to happen with the NM coding in 2021. Many of you have probably already seen a lot of this uh, in chest physician and in chest, but we're going to go over it a little bit uh, here today as well. So telehealth services include many of the services that you'd expect to provide if they were in person. You can be a qualified healthcare provider, so you don't have to be a physician. You can be an NP, you can be a PA, et cetera. You can also bill for incident two services if you have an RT that's doing some work for you as, uh, as well. Um, you must use or should use, and I'll say must, with a non-public facing audio and video. So you don't want to get onto a site where it's Facebook, for example, and it's uh, open to everybody to see because that will get you in trouble with your federal government. Your, your point of service, in other words, where you're delivering the service doesn't change. It's always going to be where you would normally do that. So for example, if uh, my place of service normally is my office, I, I do an office visit from home, it's still gonna be a place of services office, okay? Payment uh, is equivalent to the inpatient service or the inpatient visit at this point in time or the outpatient visit in the office setting. And the, the CMS is allowed for flexibility in reducing or waiving some of the cost sharing because many of these codes will require that they, they do pay their, their copay, et cetera. Next slide, please. So the telehealth codes, and I put the web address on the top, this is not all of them that you can utilize. I only picked out the ones that I thought would be real, uh, pertinent for the audience that we have today. But you can see it covers a, the vast majority of what we do on a daily basis as pulmonary critical care and sleep physicians. Next slide, please. The blue codes here are codes that can be performed as audio only codes. So many of the codes you can't do as audio only codes, you'll have to use uh, either a, a computer system with a video or um, take, take information uh, from the patient using your computer, for example, in an e-visit when they use the portal. These codes can be used with a telephone only. Next slide, please. So virtual check-in. You can do this with a new or established patient and the patient must agree. So you don't want to do this and then bill the patient without getting their agreement to do so. And it's very important also to make sure that you document that they have agreed to do this. It's usually patient initiated. So you'll get a phone call and they'll say, can you see Mrs. So-and-so? She's coughing up blood and she called earlier. You call them and this would be a virtual check-in with them. Uh, if you do a virtual check-in, you'll code it with a HixPix code, G2012. If, you, if she captures a picture um, of some of the stuff that she coughed up so that she can show you on video, then you can, you can use HixPix code 2010. Um, Coinsurance and deductibles generally apply, but again, CMS is, has kind of waived and then allows you flexibility to deciding how much to, to charge them. Next slide, please. E-visits are non-face-to-face -face using the portal, okay? Again, very important that the patient agrees and that you document that the patient agreed. Um, it's established patients and initiated by the patients. I'm sure many of you have EMRs, as do I, where you'll get a, a, a portal question from the patient. 
Uh, mine tend to get screened by my nurse before they get to me, but if you respond to that, you can bill for that. Again, QHPs, so qualified healthcare providers use CPT code 99421 through 423, and I didn't go and, and elaborate what those codes are. I would, I would refer you to the CPT book. Basically, it's a time uh, that you spend doing the, the service Non-QHPs will use HICS-PICS G codes uh, 61, G2061 through 63. And again, coinsurance and deductibles will apply, but you're flexible. Next slide, please. Audio-only service are for patients that don't have technology. As a gray-haired old physician, I have a number of patients who are 80, 90, and 100 years old who don't have a computer and don't have a cell phone, but they do have a video phone, or excuse me, they do have a regular old telephone. And they like to talk with us as well when they're afraid to come to the office because of the COVID. Um, so they can be seen virtually uh, using these codes, 99421 and, uh, through 423. If you're a non-QHP, then you'd use uh, 98966 through 68. And again, insurance generally applies, okay? And I'll, we'll have questions about this at the end, or if people have questions, you can ask them at the end. So I'm going to switch gears and, and go to uh, the summary of changes for ENM coding in 2021. Dr. Manneker was a member of the panel that sort of came up with these uh, rules and changes. So he should be congratulated because I think they're a pretty big improvement over what we've had. We're going to retain five ENM levels of coding for established patients, but for new patients, we're going to get rid of 99201. Code definitions will change and medical history no longer is required except for medically appropriate. So you'll all remember prior to this time that we would um, get these long multiple page consults from somebody that had lots of useless data in them to include a history and a physical, or excuse me, a physical and a review of systems that may not have been terribly important. And that was done primarily to make your bill a little bit larger. And nowadays you're not, or excuse me, in 2021, we're hoping that that's not gonna be necessary. So you'll do a medically appropriate exam, but that medically appropriate exam is not necessarily, in fact, it is not used to determine your code level. A physician will bill either on medical decision-making or time. So how complex is the patient that you're seeing or how much time did you spend on that patient? There will also be a new CPT code adopted for prolonged services. And we, the, the, at least in the um, semi-final rule, which hopefully um, all of you will read after this, this presentation and comment on, uh, we're hoping that they'll, they'll allow us to have the same rec recommended values and also the same for the uh, elements or what I like to refer to as the evidence table to show the evidence that you actually did what you said you did. Next slide, please. So um, deletion of code 99201, we already talked about. Um, components of the service, we also talked about medical decision-making and time on the date of encounter. So that means if you have spent time prior to the patient getting there, if you've spent time after the patient was there communicating with their physician, et cetera, that all is billed where that had not necessarily been billed prior to this time. And as we pointed out, the medically appropriate history and physical is not used to determine the code level. Next slide. Um, e and uh, uh, the MDM is extensively clarified, at least in the way it was written, and we'll get to that a little bit later in some more slides. Time includes the face-to-face -face as well as non-face-to-face, -face, and the time ranges we'll show you in a minute. The longer code 99XXX, uh, I think is going to be 99417, but don't, don't quote me on that one. Scott, shake your head up or down if that's correct. Or, yeah, don't know. Okay. Don't know. <laughs> All right. It's reported when the visit is based on time and after the total time of the highest level of service in a 205 or a 215 has been exceeded. And we'll show a slide on that in a second. Next slide, please. All right. So 2019, you know how we build. We build with the history, physical examination, and medical decision-making or time. And that was only face-to-face -face time. Next slide, please. In 2021, it'll be medical decision-making or time, and the time is the total time on the date of an encounter. Next slide, please. Okay, so 99202, straightforward medical decision-making, 15 to 29 minutes. And 
those are the two pieces of information that you need to know. Next slide, please. Three, four, and five, low-level decision-making in 30 to 34, moderate and 45 to 59, or high and 60 to 74 minutes. If you go above that time, then you would add the 99XXX code. Next slide, please. Established patient 99211 is fairly straightforward and time spent with the patient is minimal. Next. 99212, straightforward with 10 to 19 minutes of total time spent on the date of the encounter. Next slide, please. And you can see the next 313 is 20 to 29 minutes, 1430 to 39, and 1540 to 54. Prolonged service code is added above 55 minutes or longer. Next slide, please. Uh, definition of medical decision-making, a self-limited or minor problem that runs a definite course and is transient in nature. A stable or chronic illness is a problem expected uh, duration of at least a year until the or until the death of the patient. And defining chronicity, uh, they're treated as chronic whether or not the stages or severity of the uh, disease goes away. So a diabetic is still diabetic and has a chronic disease even if it's under good control. Next slide, please. Self-limited or minor problems are stable for the purposes of categorizing the medical decision-making as a patient whose treatment is not at goal yet, so a COPD patient or an asthmatic patient who does not have a baseline spirometry. And those are, those are things that, that, again, are going to come up in a, in a following slide, and I'll go over that in a second. Next slide, please. Acute un uncomplicated illness or injury short-term problem with low risk for morbidity, or morbidity, little or no risk to mortality, and full recovery is expected. Next slide, please. So level of decision-making we've already talked about, straightforward, low, moderate, or high. Next, please. These are the element, elements of medical decision-making, which again are tables that you'll recognize from, um, from CMS and from the CPT manual previously. I'm not going to belabor these, but these are what we hope are going to be allowed by CMS and their contractors when we start the 2021 rules. Next slide, please. Those were the codes for the, the um, new and established patients at uh, levels one and two. This is for level three. Next slide, please. Level four. And again, I'm not going to read them all, but you'll, you'll be able to see them when you review this incredibly interesting webinar. Next slide, please. And there's level five for you. Final slide, please. I hope it's final. So select, no, it's not final. Selecting a level of service. Time, physician or qualified healthcare professional time includes the following. Preparing to see the patient, so you review the test. Obtaining and reviewing separate obtained history. So if you're a nurse or your, your PA or whomever got a history, your history is added to that person's history, but you have to have that separate history as your separate history. Performing a medically, medically necessary appropriate exam and then counseling. Next slide, please. Then you can do other things that you order. If you call the referring physician, what you take in terms of time documenting, reports of uh, things that you independently interpret. So if it's a spirogram, for example, that's your independent uh, interpretation and reporting and then coordination of care if it was not reported separately. Next level, please, or next slide, please. The 99XXX code is the code that you're gonna add if you do additional time. And I think I might have one more slide. Nope, I don't. It's on you, Scott. Thanks, Mike. Well, I've got the unenviable task of following two great speakers. Uh, I'd like to thank both my fellow speakers and the College of Chess Physicians for inviting me to participate. And I'd like to thank all of those of you who are calling in, typing in to the Q&A uh, line your questions and, and some of you have previously sent them in. I'd like to thank all of you for participating today and making this a very interactive session. We're, we're planning on finishing our comments by around 40 or 45 minutes after the hour so that we'll have time to go through many of your questions. And hopefully we'll be answering some of them as we go through the slides. So next slide, please. Uh, here are my disclosures. I'm, I'm gonna leave them up for a moment 
just so that you can see, I, I serve on way too many committees. Uh, I've, I've been likened to a professional meeting goer, uh, but it's all doing the good work to keep uh, our specialties and uh, the medical profession going and fairly reimbursed for the good care we're providing to our patients. Next slide, please. Uh, my wife does own some pharmaceutical company stock. Uh, I am actually on the American Medical Association RVU Update Committee, or the RUC that Mike referred to. I'm uh, a trustee for the Board for Respiratory Care. I, I do some editing both for UpToDate and the journal Chest, and I do a lot of medical legal work, which provides me a lot of information that I can then remind everybody what the do's and, and don'ts are. Uh, it also puts me in a unique position to be uh, explaining to all of you some of the uh, uncertainties and some of the directions that Medicare is specifically looking the other way that is allowing us to provide all of these telemedicine services. Next slide, please. So it's been quite a year. Anybody remember vaping and vaping-related injuries? Uh, in 20 years of doing diagnosis work in ICD-9, ICD-10, and even some ICD-11 work, this is the first time that uh, I am aware that the World Health Organization actually created one of these emergency U-codes for the epidemic of e-cigarette vaping lung injury, or, or a valley. And of course, that has been completely eclipsed. That epidemic has been eclipsed by the pandemic, thanks to SARS-CoV-2 or the coronavirus or COVID-19. So we've, we've got these two emergency codes, but you really don't need to remember them because as shown on, on the next slide, the primary diagnoses on the next slide uh, should be the underlying diseases. So for those of us taking care of patients with COVID pneumonia, we're supposed to use the viral pneumonia code J12.89. Uh, if it's a really sick COVID pneumonia patient and they come to our ICU with not only their respiratory failure from their viral pneumonia, but the cardiomyopathy, the kidney, kidney injury, the transaminitis, the coagulopathy, and the sepsis, we are encouraged, we are instructed to use all of those other appropriate diagnosis codes. We should not be using the B97-2 coronavirus causing diseases elsewhere that people quickly find trying to look up coronavirus in their diagnosis tables. We should be coding the underlying disease or diseases first, and then we can use that U-code as a second, third, fourth, or 15th diagnosis code way, way down on the list. For the people we are considering whether they have COVID pneumonia or a COVID-related disease, there is that Z20.828. They've been exposed. They're suspected of having a viral disease. That's the code to use for persons under investigation. Uh, there is a separate Z code, which come to think of it, I should have put on the slide, which is testing prior, viral testing prior to undergoing a diagnostic procedure like a cardiac stress test, a, uh, pul a pulmonary uh, um, uh, bronchodilator study, or things creating aerosols. Next slide, please. I always remind people to distinguish telehealth, which is the specific Medicare benefit in geographic areas designated as health professional shortage areas, to separate that from the, the wide panoply of telemedicine that Katie and, and Mike described earlier. During the pandemic and this public health emergency, Medicare has relaxed a whole bunch of rules. They've said we are no longer going to limit the telehealth benefit to these geographic health professional shortage areas or, or HIPSAs. We're going to let you do it anywhere. As Mike mentioned, you can use any inward facing platform. It doesn't necessarily need to be HIPAA compliant and HIPAA certified so that you can use FaceTime, Skype, Duo, uh, uh, and other commercially available platforms, but you should not be using Facebook 
as but one example. You no longer need to be at the site of service. So if you were providing a telehealth service, you had to be at the originating facility. You couldn't, you couldn't do it from home. Medicare has relaxed that benefit and, and you can do it from anywhere. But they do request and prefer that you have a video link and it's not just telephone. And I'll, I'll talk about that again in a moment or two. During the public health emergencies, all of the a priori consents, such as for several of the services that Katie and Mike discussed, and patient copays, uh, Medicare does not have the ability to instruct us or allow us to waive them. What Medicare has done is said, we're not going to look. There will be no retrospective review of collecting these consents or copays going forward. Uh, they do require we use existing CPT codes and, and definitions, but said for the purposes of telemedicine services, uh, we are no longer requiring any history or physical exam elements. We're setting the stage, as it were, for the new office visit changes going into effect in January 2021 by not requiring any history or physical exam. But they but what, what about the other payers? Well, there are hyper-variable instructions and requirements. Uh, m many require video. Some say telephone is completely sufficient. And so the next slide shows you what this looks like in, in a data table that, that we use. Could I have the next slide? where we simply take a look at what traditional Medicare is doing and compare it to some of the biggest payers in, in our local marketplace. And what you can see is some of them do have phone parity. If you provide a moderate or high complexity office visit uh, by telephone, they'll pay you the same as if it were face-to-face -face or by video. And others provide for a lower phone rate. Uh, Medicare has done an interesting hybrid model. Medicare says, by statute, we're not allowed to let you bill us for office visits using telephone alone or telephone plus video. You have to use the appropriate 99441 through three and 99421 through 23 for those services. But if you provide the service with video, we will pay you at the equivalent office rate. And if you provide the service by telephone only using the 99441, two and three for a low, medium and long duration telephone call, what we will do is exercise our authority to increase the RVUs and consequently the payment for those telephone services so that they will pay. You will be reimbursed at the equivalent of a 99212, 213, or 214 office visit, respectively. Next slide, please. Now, there are others, some other nuances that you need to think about when you're providing these telemedicine services, such as, do I have a license to actually practice in an adjacent state? Uh, I, I put up here the regulation from the state of Kentucky, which basically says we're waiving the requirements for out-of-state providers to have a license in Kentucky. You want to take care of our Kentucky residents, we are happy for you to take care of our residents. Delaware and New York, adjacent states to Pennsylvania, are identical to Kentucky. New Jersey, on the other hand, requires a temporary license for the establishment of care to new patients. And so literally uh, 2,000 of us at Penn Medicine, or more than 2,000, very rapidly uh, applied as an online form for a New Jersey license during the public health emergency. It's good for 180 days, and they just extended it for another 180 days into February of 2021 so that we can continue providing uh, new office visit services and uh, even hospital-based services by telehealth to newly established patients uh, in, in New Jersey. Next slide. 
there's going to be a host of medical legal work for all of us going forward. There are plaintiff attorneys already advertising for a variety of expert witnesses as they deal with patients who have been harmed during the epidemic uh, um, and also by workers, both uh, medical workers as well as uh, other types of essential workers and even non-essential non workers who didn't want to go into various workplaces absent appropriate personal protective equipment. Uh, next slide, please. At the same time, states are providing blanket types of uh, liability coverage preventing providers from being sued for malpractice during the public health emergency. Now, here's the regulation in the state of Pennsylvania, which is very specific, and it distills down to simply, uh, you, you can't be sued for malpractice taking care of a COVID-19 patient. This is for providers. The hospitals can still be sued, and we may be named in suits that are ultimately going to be directed against the hospital because we'll have to be dropped. Similarly, there is no coverage for us taking care of non-COVID-19 patients during the public health emergency. Next slide, please. Medicare has resumed their routine audits. Uh, in the past year or two, we have received audits for advanced care planning, transitional care management, all of the new and established office visits, hospital care, and of course, critical care. This has been on hold since March, but was restarted on August 1st. So all of us are now potentially going to be once again receiving these targeted probe and educate audits. The next slide is a flow diagram of what the process is, where we get a letter requesting 20 to 40 claims. Sometimes it's from one provider, sometimes it's for one CPT code. The most important thing that you must do is respond, pull the records and answer. The fastest way to fail this audit first round is not provide the records. That gets you to round two and round three. And we actually had one division uh, get to round three where they were at risk of being referred for extrapolation, 100% prepays, and to a ZPIC, which is a zone program integrity contractor. That's where guys in dark suits and glasses come in with a subpoena and rip the hard drives out of your computers. So you don't want to be there. When you get one of these letters, please respond and, and you can pass. The next slide is your tip sheet. This is the standard Medicare documentation checklist for critical care services. They want to make sure you are on, uh, uh, on the floor unit at, or at the patient's bedside. You had high complexity decision making. Uh, your time was more than 30 minutes. And so remember, the, the three essential features summarized here are document your time, say what the patient is critically ill with, and say what your critical care service was. What did you do for this patient today? Next slide, please. There's a whole, whole lot of uncertainties that we don't know the answer. Right now, the public health emergency is extended through, through October. Uh, Medicare can only extend it by 90 days at a time. Each of our private payers are extending it ad hoc. Sometimes they don't extend it until two days before it's going to expire. Sometimes they'll extend it for three months. Sometimes they'll extend it for one month. Nobody knows how long this is going to go on, but all of our medical societies are requesting that it extends through December of 2021 so that we can continue preparing for what will hopefully not be another surge during flu season. Uh, the proposed rule from Medicare expands or maintains the absence of requirements for any bullet points of history or exam for in-person office visits, but we don't know if they're going to be using the new evidence tables as Mike described or medical decision-making tables as, as the AMA describes, or if like now we're using the current existing medical decision-making. Next slide, please. I just want all of you to imagine, look at this level five office visit. 
wouldn't it be a real pleasure to be taking care of a patient, a cancer patient, and this is the level five office visit based purely on medical decision making. And we could be writing notes just like this. The next slide shows what this would look like based on time only coding. I spent 41 minutes, including some face-to-face -face time, but it was 41 minutes today taking care of this patient. That's all you'd have to write for a level five office visit. And we still don't know if Medicare is gonna be accepting this or not come January 1. We're waiting for the final rule, which is supposed to come out November 1, but because everything's been delayed, it's probably gonna come out closer to Thanksgiving uh, before we'll know what we're supposed to be doing on January 1st. And I believe with the next slide, I'm, uh, uh, this is just uh, a reminder of what the payments will potentially look like next year for all of us. And with the next slide, I'm still at 45 minutes after the hour. Uh, Kim, we're, we're ready to open up Q&A, uh, answer questions that we haven't covered during the talk, and see what people have been sending in beforehand that we can prepare, we, we are prepared for. Terrific. Can I make one? Kim, can I make one correction? Some Absolutely. incredibly good listener noted that on my slide on telephone only, I have 99421, not 99441. So that slide's wrong. So I will cut off my left fourth finger <laughs> and just make sure you guys correct it when you do your billing. Well, uh, Mike, if it makes you feel any better, I get the 4421 and 4441 confused all the time. So. Absolutely. I have Easy. a mental block about it. Easy to do. Well, thank you, uh, Katie, Mike, and Scott. That was uh, three terrific presentations that really demonstrate where we've come in about six short months uh, with the deployment of telemedicine in a variety of venues and clinical scenarios. Um, just a quick reminder, this video recording or uh, this taped recording will be available uh, you should receive a chest email within the next 24 hours that will give you further instructions on how to access this recording. Um, we have one, a uh, uh, few questions that have come in live, which we will, uh, why don't we handle those first? And uh, then we'll get to some of the outstanding questions that were um, sent prior to the, uh, prior to the uh, webinar today. Uh, first question, for telecritical care billing, is there an originating site requirement that the patient has to be, locate, be located in a designated rural location? Uh, any of the panelists, feel free to take that one. I'll I'll, I'll take that one. Um, the, the answer is during the public health emergency, no. The requirement for a HIPAA health professional shortage area is waived. So the patient can be anywhere. And in fact, uh, we, we were providing uh, telehealth critical care services to a local hospital in New Jersey that was overwhelmed uh, during April and, and early May. So during the public health emergency, there's no originating site requirement. Thank you. Uh, next question, another question about coding COVID. It seems a, a slide suggested that we should code say J96.01, then U07.1. At yes. first we were coding underlying and then the COVID code. Um, I understood that we were to code underlying then COVID diagnosis. However, cost share waivers were not being applied. Also, the uninsured HRSA funds is rejecting those U codes, U07.1, as it is not the primary diagnosis. When we code U07.1 and then the underlying conditions, we are getting paid. Um, I'm, ha I'm happy to have the panelists weigh in on that. There sure. may be some carrier differences yeah. that I've seen in the Chicago market for sure. Others may be experiencing that. This is a great question because it emphasizes several points. Number one, it's chaos and pandemonium out there 
between different payers and e even some inconsistencies between Medicare contractors. The coding guidelines are pretty clear that you should be coding the underlying conditions first and the U07 code should, should follow afterward. That notwithstanding, coding guidelines don't pay claims and payers pay claims and they, they follow the golden rule which is he or she who has the gold makes the rules. So they can make up their own rules. And if they want a U07.1 first so that you get paid, you'll have to practice payer specific billing and put the U07.1. It's not what the coding guidelines recommend or instruct us to do, but that's what you need to do to appropriately get paid by those particular payers. There are similar examples all over the country of different modifiers being requested for telephone only visits versus telephone and video visits. Uh, modifiers for different originating sites if you're at home versus in the facility. Lots of variations around the country. And so it was an excellent question. Thank you. Next question. How do you set up patients with spirometry at home? take this question. Um, so spirometry, similar to any other type of device that can be used for store and forward, could be mailed out to a patient. Um, so there are companies that will um, potentially mail out devices, collect it back from a patient, upload the data to a centralized uh, server for access. Um, you could also set up a mail out program from your own office to get the device to the patient to use and then return to you. Uh, and in some cases, courier or have the patient pick it up from a local clinic um, or your facility, but take it home, do everything in, the, in their home, and then return, drop off the, the recorder. So there are a number of strategies to access home portable spirometry. Thank you. Uh, next question. Office patients seen for hypoxemia, DOE, and other post-viral syndrome manifestations but is COVID negative now? Can we still use U07.1? Analysts? I, I, I would not. The patient, if the patient had pneumococcal pneumonia or Klebsiella pneumonia and, and they've recovered, but they're still hypoxemic with abnormal chest X-ray, I would use hypoxemia, abnormal chest X-ray, but I wouldn't give them COVID pneumonia any more than I would not continue to give them pneumococcal pneumonia or Klebsiella pneumonia. I would give them hypoxemia, abnormal chest X-ray, exertional dyspnea. Uh, a number of questions uh, coming in asking about handouts uh, and slides. I believe you will be able to get uh, a, a PDF version on the recording. Uh, someone can correct me if that is, is not true, but I believe that is the way it has been. Um, so uh, we'll look forward to sending those to you. I'll take a couple of um, questions from uh, folks who sent them in in advance, and some of them were, were outstanding. Um, here's one. Uh, what is the difference and how do you determine documentation differences for various levels of telephonic e-visits and true telemedicine visits? Describe the coding and the documentation for each. That's a lot to unpackage there, but it may be a, a, a answered by many of our panelists uh, because I think depending on which level of, of uh, coding you are using, telephonic, um, telephonic e-visits or, um, or true E&M telemedicine codes, your documentation would vary slightly. We have set up our EMR uh, to handle each of those uh, levels of coding. I'm not sure how the panelists might react to that question. I'll start first and, and just say, yeah, I do think the level is a bit different because the information is a bit different. I think it's important that you make sure 
that at least we make sure that we have the patient's consent to do this as, as one of the top things on here. And then honestly, what I do is, is if I discussed it with them, I put it down in the visit. And if I discussed it over the telephone or if I have a, a uh, if I did a telephone or I did an e-visit, I put as much of that information in, it, in as I can, not only for me and my future encounters with that patient, but also for somebody else that might be looking at that note later on. For a uh, portal visit, um, again, same with me. I, I actually dictate as much information as I can in there because somebody else is going to come back and look at it, including me, and so I like to have that information. Obviously, you can't put in things like, like physical exam findings, et cetera, unless you get pictures and, and things, in which case you can describe them. But um, I think the more information you put in, the better. Great. Thank you. Agree. Anyone else have, have comments on that uh, from the panelists? If not, we'll I take would, another. Oh, I, I, would, I would just add that um, you have to practice payer-specific billing because you'll get different instructions from different payers. Uh, so, so much like Mike says, we have gone to great pains to standardize our notes, have specific pull-downs so that we are capturing how many minutes face-to-face -face or on, on video or how many minutes on the telephone with the patient. Separately, we add up all of the minutes before and all of the minutes afterward, finishing the notes and orders and anything, letters and anything else, so that we are separately capturing the total number of minutes on the calendar day so that we can then follow quite varying guidelines from each of our different payers on how to report those services. Some want office visits, some want telephone codes, some want uh, uh, video electronic visit codes. And I think what we've heard from all three of you is that that particular point cannot be underestimated. I think the payer differences are astounding uh, by, by state, by geography, even by some of our counties. And um, you really need to be adept in understanding who, who is requesting what uh, for proper payment. Um, here, here's an interesting comment back, and I actually was trying to look that up uh, during, during the segment. Um, uh, uh, write in on, there is a Z code for post-COVID, Z86.19. Any commentary on the use of that ICD-10? Uh, you can you can certainly use it. It's it's one of the Z status codes. It's saying somebody had it. There's it's the equivalent of Z status codes for people who've undergone a lung transplant. There are Z status codes for uh, smoking and for asbestos exposure, and it once again highlights the variance between payers. Some payers will not accept a claim where the Z code is the primary diagnosis on the claim. Others will pay it just fine. And then for others, it really depends on the code. The, the Z code for tobacco cessation, uh, the, the Z code for smoking, for example, can be the primary diagnosis for 99406 tobacco cessation counseling, could be the primary diagnosis for lung cancer screening, but a payer may choose not to pay a claim for a routine office visit for that as a primary diagnosis code. Thank you. That's what we're seeing locally as well. Uh, and we've, we've uh, gone back to the reason for, uh, reason for care, reason for treatment, uh, new symptom or ongoing symptom. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, another one that was sent uh, prior to today's webinar, um, is there any additional increased reimbursement for COVID precautions being, taking, being taken in the office or outpatient setting? I can, I can take that. So um, uh, the, the AMA, the American Medical Association RVU committee has a practice expense committee and we, we examined that uh, a subcommittee was formed. We got over 800 invoices for gowns, masks, sanitizing, 
wipes, sanitizing liquids, came up with an estimated cost per patient encounter. Uh, we had a emergent meeting of the CPT editorial panel and they created a new CPT code for this personal protective equipment costs in the physician office setting and that was sent in a letter request to Medicare a couple of weeks ago specifically requesting that it be outside of budget neutrality namely additional funds be put into the physician fee schedule so that it wasn't a left pocket, right pocket where we get paid less for office visits because we're getting paid for our PPP, PPE expenses. So that, that, that request is sitting in the halls of Medicare right now and we're all waiting to see what they do with it in the final rule scheduled to come out sometime late November. How about another question here? Um, critical care billing and video visits. Is it permissible to use video in your normal critical care setting during COVID? Uh, I, I would have to say, yes, during the public health emergency, Medicare and most of the other payers are allowing use of 99291, standard critical care, performed as a telehealth service. So you are not in the facility, you are not in the ICU, uh, and you remote in to see the patients, see the monitors, see the data, and provide more than 30 minutes of a critical care service to that patient. Yeah, that was listed on, on that list of codes, which I think was my second or third slide. So look through that list and again, look at the, the website, but also recognize that after the PHE, that may disappear very quickly. Um, how about another one? Are you, is it permissible to code when you are using or working with an app? We know there are a lot of apps out there now, uh, apps for remote monitoring, apps for devices, apps for self-monitoring. Are these uh, able to be coded and built? I'm gonna defer to Kathleen, but I would suspect that if that app provide you with useful information that you can help manage patients with, then you can utilize the information that you get because it shouldn't be app specific, it should be more information specific. Yeah, I'd agree with Mike on that. Um, if the app is sending you imaging or there's uh, data to be reviewed, sometimes that's uh, considered store and forward. If the app is for real-time telehealth uh, engagement, then um, obviously you would uh, lump that under synchronous telehealth video visits. Um, but there are a number of apps that are allowing patients to upload uh, information or data or images that can then be sent like a, you know, skin lesion or, or something else, uh, hemoptysis, clot, uh, and transmitted to their provider for review. And, uh, and Self-management apps are, are not covered to my knowledge. Right. And once again, I would emphasize the variation among payers because a lot of payers won't pay any of those codes at all. Some will pay under some circumstances. The code descriptors specify physiologic monitoring like pulse oximetry, blood pressure, or heart rate. They don't say anything about CPAP usage downloads, which really don't reflect physiologic data. So there's lots of debate and I can't get a straight answer from anyone at Medicare or any of the other payers about whether they will or won't accept CPAP download data for any of those codes. In the proposed rule, Medicare is proposing payment for several of these but with the caveat that it is not patient initiated, it is automatically from the device and any uh, relevant app, automatically transmitted on a daily basis. And so you, you really need to figure out what, what apps and devices are we talking about? Which payers are we talking about? And 
are they going to cover this how? Some of those are unanswerable, I think. <laughs> uh, why don't we take a final question here uh, from, a, from a prior uh, send-in. If a patient has tested COVID negative already, but their healthcare physician or other healthcare provider gives them a presumed COVID diagnosis and treats the patient as if they were positive, but does not state the patient is COVID positive, how would you code that? Could you repeat the question? I'm not sure I, I could follow it. And, and I will say that there, there is a literature out there of, uh, of misguided physicians lying on behalf of their patients and in interpreting it as advocacy, saying they have diseases, disorders, conditions that they don't have so that they can get a handicapped parking placard, so that they can get oxygen that they wouldn't normally qualify for, so that they can get uh, a diagnostic imaging study instead of a screening study that they don't qualify for. So um, could you repeat that question? <laughs> Sure. I'll I don't think you need to repeat it. I'm just going to say, no, you don't, don't go to this COVID because it's not COVID and you would have a hard time in the court of law proving that it was COVID if somebody came along and took you to court and said, okay, well, this person didn't have COVID and you just made me spend however many dollars doing this stuff. So yeah, I, I think there's plenty of other things that you can code it. You can code it as another viral syndrome. You can code it as bacterial pneumonia. You can code it as malingering but I wouldn't code it as COVID because of the special circumstances giving you special privileges. You don't want to, to make use of those privileges illegally. And, and to the extent I remember portions of the question, I would applaud the person who asked for recognizing that there was an inappropriate COVID diagnosis made by another provider and they're not gonna perpetuate that uh, misdiagnosis. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't see any other live questions, uh, and we've covered uh, most of the questions that were sent in in advance. So I'd like to uh, certainly thank Chest, Beth, Corey, and team for doing a phenomenal job uh, supporting this webinar, uh, supporting us, the speakers, myself, uh, and certainly thank you, Dr. Maniker, Dr. Nelson, and Dr. Sarmiento. It was a terrific afternoon. Uh, the attendees can, can look for that email to come and then you will have access to the full presentation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.